Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. Today, I'm joined by award-winning writer, blogger, and emerging playwright, Denise Harrison. Denise went from alcohol addiction and homelessness to LA Grand Jury Prize for telling her story in the animated short film, This is Depression. It's turned out to be a, a massive blessing, but at the time, if, if somebody had kind of been beamed down and said, hey Denise, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine, I'd have, I'd have, <laughs> I'd have probably strangled you. Hi Denise, it is really nice to be chatting with you today. I feel like we've been trying to get together and chat for a really long time. <laughs> I feel like we've already done the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. We're just going to freestyle it, aren't we? So, Denise, it's interesting because my whole idea with this podcast was chatting with women who had changed their careers over 35. And with you, your story was so appealing because it wasn't about career. It was about everything. Your entire life has had a massive, crazy trajectory shift and obviously we'll get into all the details about that, but definitely had more than just a career change. Everything is is just, I can't explain how crazy everything has been in such a horrendous way initially to kind of turn out the way that it's turning out today. It's like, if if you'd have told me back then when I was absolutely at my lowest, if, if somebody had kind of been beamed down and said, hey, Denise, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. I'd have, I'd, have, <laughs> I'd have probably strangled you. Because I'd, be say- like, I'd be like, have you seen this? Have you, have you seen what you've left me to work with? It's just, it's, it's turned out to be a, a massive blessing. But at the time, it, it was just like some real sick joke by the universe. That's the only way I can kind of describe it. So I wanted to start where you looked into a mirror, six stone, and just realized your life was a mess. And if you didn't change something soon, it was, you were going to die. Tell me about looking into that mirror. I can remember I was in, I was in Weatherspoons, ironically, and all my clothes were like falling off me because I didn't have many anyway at that point. So I was kind of re-wearing the same stuff. And I just, I looked at this person and I was like, who are you? Because it, it, I just looked like a tramp. Even then, it, it didn't register. I didn't even know how little I weighed until I went to detox because I just kept telling myself that if I, if I got up at some point in the day and tried to kind of put my face on, like literally I'd put makeup on and, and you know, try and act that everything was normal and stuff. I just kind of pretended that everything was fine when it literally wasn't fine. Like all my hair was falling out and my periods had stopped. My body was literally just getting rid of everything that it didn't need to try and keep me going. And I was so emaciated, I could barely walk as well. I must have looked horrific. But to me, I was just like, well, pff, this is this is how it is. You know, it's, you, you literally, I think you go into such a weird headspace that even though you can see what's going on, you don't actually realize how bad things have got. It does take a moment, I think, like this mirror moment that you've talked about to maybe see yourself from the outside. Because when you're living your own life, you're not getting that outsider perspective. It seems like almost somebody came from the outside or you came from your own You came out of your body for a second and said, who is this person? Almost like with an outsider's perspective. I honestly think it was when I went into detox. 
I remember that conversation. I was drunk when I got there as well, <laughs> but I clearly remember them like weighing me and saying how much I weighed. And I remember that really sticking in my head and me just going, oh, you know, that, that's not very much. So I, I think it was, it was literally, I'd been in denial about it all until I got there. And then I kind of think once that conversation kicked in, I think I realized actually this is it. This, this is happening. And I really do need to be here because I'm quite unwell. Obviously, that's not something that just happens overnight. So let's go back to the beginning a little bit. And I know that when you were six, you lost your dad very early on. But do you think that was the beginning of a, a bit of a downward trajectory? I think at the time, I didn't think that it had an impact on me too much, if I'm truthful, because it, we didn't... I went to school and when I came back, he was dead. Hmm. So I'd heard him in the morning. He was shouting at the dog because he wasn't very well in bed. And so, of course, I toddle off to school, as you do. And then the knit nurse came to pick me up from school and she didn't tell me why. So I'm getting all excited, thinking that I've got half a day off school. Oh, no. And we get to, we get to the house and there's a police car outside the house. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, what have they done now? Because the neighbours were a little bit sketchy. And so I thought it was them. So I'm chattering away to her going, oh, you know, the police are there and blah, 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 blah. And she still didn't say anything. And then I remember she obviously knocked on the door and my brother was there and he was only four. And he went, Denise, dad's dead. And I just started laughing because it was just such a ridiculous thing to hear and for him to say. And and then it was like, then I saw my mum crying in, in the corridor and I remember going upstairs and sitting on the bed in their bedroom and, and thinking that he was going to jump out of the wardrobe or something. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. was, it, was, it was such a weird, weird thing. And then I think my mum thought that she was protecting us because she didn't let us go to the funeral. Mm. But for me and my brother, that was another reason that we thought he'd, we decided then that he'd run away that they'd had an argument and my dad had run away. <laughs> As you do when you're kids, you know, you're coming up with these different scenarios. Right. And so for ages, I think we just kept thinking, oh, you know, we'd say to each other on the bus, he might be home later. So I, re I remember that. And then I, rem I remember thinking, actually, you know, it, it hasn't had an impact. But it's, in hindsight, it's had a huge impact on me. I've got huge issues around abandonment that I didn't actually know up until, you know, when all of this madness started, I've started to make sense of it all. And it's like, do you know what? I, I can't take people leaving me at short notice. It, it really does something to my head. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us have those kind of abandonment issues. And to think about it happening from the age of six, I mean, the funeral thing is interesting because it's such a sense of closure. And I know as an adult with my grandparents dying, both of them donated their bodies to science, which wow. <laughs> sounds like it doesn't even sound like a real thing. But yeah, they did. And so we didn't end up having funerals for them. And I sometimes just have to think, are my grandparents still alive? Which sounds so silly as a full-fledged yeah, adult. But, but when it, you're six, of course you're going to make up a exactly. story that he's coming back. Yeah, because it's, you know, it, it was so different back then. It was just as though it had happened. And then that was it, you know. And, and I remember being at school and the, the kids didn't want to talk to me or kind of play with me and my brother and stuff. And I felt like they thought that they were going to catch death. So it was, it was, it was really tricky. And then my mum turned to alcohol because she was obviously really struggling 
And so I got an alcoholic mum, no dad. Yeah. <laughs> just all this chaos in the home that was just ridiculous. And, and you're the and older sibling, a, so I'm assuming you yeah, kind of had yeah. to take charge. Yeah, and it was like I had to kind of step up and try and be mum, which was ridiculous because I was a kid. But it was like there was nobody else to do it for us. And then it kind of it got to the stage there was a social worker involved. So it must have got, you know, noticed at some point, but they never actually did anything. There was never an intervention. And it, it was, you know, and it, with hindsight, that was probably quite a good thing. The family ended up staying together, but it was, I, I don't know. It's My mum needed help and I don't think that the help was there for her or she didn't know how to get it. Yeah. And I look back now and I just feel, you know, it must have been so horrendous. When when my madness started, I could understand in a way how badly she'd been affected because it was happening to me. But when I was a kid, I just thought she was this crazy woman who drank too much. And I didn't understand why she was being the way she was. But, she, you know, she was depressed and she was grieving and she was she had two kids that, you know, we were probably a bit of a handful at that age because we were, you know, we just wanted to do kids stuff and we couldn't because nobody could take us or, you know, so it was, it was all a bit of a mishmash, really. And I know that you have a story about opening up a Christmas present. Was it a doll with a, with a face yeah, that was she dirty? Yeah, a little dirty face, yeah. Again, it was one of those things. It's like my mum had obviously tried hard to, to, you know, to do Christmas at all. She probably didn't have any money. And so we got secondhand presents or, you know, at least a couple of them. But instead, because you're little, you just want the same Christmas that other kids are getting. You know, you, you want the bells and the whistles and you want the nice shiny things and stuff. And so when you open something that has obviously been played with by somebody else first, it's you don't understand it you're like why and I think a part of you then starts to think well am I not good enough for for proper presents you know so it's it sets off this whole thing that it's like you're storing away these nuggets of information that you're just not good enough for people to want to be with you or to buy you things that thing stuck out for me so as far as school and everything goes obviously that probably wasn't the easiest thing either when you're basically (laughs) raising a family as a child. (laughs) hated school. Oh my God. And the other thing was as well, I used to get really bad separation anxiety because my mum would like, in the early days, she'd walk us to school. But I would remember standing in the playground and waving and waving and waving until my arm fell off. But having this massive sense of panic going, but what if she dies? Yeah. It was so traumatizing because it was like, you know, I didn't expect my dad to die. So I couldn't rule anything out. So I couldn't relax at school. The kids were pretty horrible anyway. You know, they didn't want anything to do with us. So I'd spend my time with like little kids and my brother. And then when I went to secondary school, which I also hated because my mum was a Catholic. And so she sent us to a Catholic school. And I'm, you know, I'm not being disrespectful of, of that religion. It just, it was miles away from where we live. And so all the kids in my town went to the high school, the normal high school. And we got shipped off to this one. So I was even more isolated because the kids that I was socialising with, they didn't live where I lived, so it's not like I could see them after school or anything, really. I got bullied a lot. 
So I spent a lot of time just <laughs> in the toilets or not going there at all. It was a shame because I'm clever, you know, I was, I was clever at school. I had a really active mind. I used to read all the time when I was a kid to kind of distract myself from the stuff that was happening. So I had all these questions and, and all of these like scenarios and things that I wanted to find out more about. But I just felt like I just didn't belong in, in that place with those people because I was just so on my own. So I, I hated secondary school and I couldn't wait to leave. By the time my exams came around, I was so stressed and, and kind of burnt out with everything that I failed most of them anyway. Mm. So I got A grades in my English and then everything else I either failed pretty much or I didn't turn up for, which was a shame, you know, I, I look back. But to be fair, even if I could change it and go back, I, I don't think the outcome would have been much different. I think I was so over it by that time. I just didn't have it in me to do them. So I was like, you know what? My home life was so stressful. My mum was seeing this guy who was an absolute idiot. So he was putting a lot of pressure on things. And, it, and I just I had nowhere to, to escape the madness. And I wasn't in the mind frame to sit and, and, you know, revise for exams that weren't making any sense to me anyway. So yeah. I, I didn't. I just I just scrapped it and just went, you know what, Pff, not even I'm not even bothering. Yeah. And I mean, to escape into books is, is one thing, but to revise for an exam is completely different. Exactly. You know, there, there, there was no place for me to do it. I, I just didn't have the headspace for it. I was so full of other people's rubbish that I didn't have space for my own ambitions or I was literally just figuring things out as I went along. So what did you do after that? I know you eventually started kind of working on projects that helped struggling families, but was that something that came directly out of that? I wanted to be an animal nurse. And I always, always, from when I was a little kid, I loved animals. So I, I wanted to be an animal nurse. And when I was 14, I got a job um, a, you know, like a part-time voluntary job at the local vets, which absolutely just blew my mind. And then I got a place at animal nursing school just at the same time that one of the animal nurses left. And so I got offered a full-time, I was obviously 16 by this point, but I got offered a, a full-time job as an animal nurse, but it meant me turning down my place at college. Okay. And so naively, I just saw like the sparkly bit and I was like, oh my God, you know, I've got a job as an animal nurse. I've got a job as an animal nurse. So I turned down my college place, which in hindsight, I should never have done. I should have still gone there and got my qualifications and then I could have worked anywhere because as it turned out, the, the job didn't work out. And uh, because I wasn't qualified, I, I struggled to get another one. So it was like the one thing that I, you know, I'd really set my heart on didn't happen. And that kind of crushed me a little bit. You know, it was like, it was a bit of a body blow, really. And then after that, it was like just menial little jobs, whatever I could do, you know, working in a shop or working behind a bar or whatever it was that came along at the time that I didn't have to be too clever for. This is the thing. It's like the one thing that's come out of all this is my self-confidence is actually got higher <laughs> because it was so low back then it was like an ant could have stepped over my bar so now you know I'm, I'm a lot more 
savvy. I kind of am a, I have my wits about me a little bit more. I still struggle with my self-confidence, but God knows how I got anything back in those days. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's why I'm so fascinated with talking to women that are past 35 and have done a lot of different things because self-confidence is something that takes a really long time to develop. And we do have so many blows sometimes when we're younger that take a really long time to get over. And I know I deal with it all the time. So I completely recognize this idea of, you know, you spend a whole life not trusting yourself or fearing, even fearing success, really. It takes, it takes a long time to build up mm. self-esteem for a, for a lot of people, I think, especially based on bad experiences. Also, is it, you know, as a child, if you haven't got anybody telling you that you are good enough because you, you're kind of invisible to everybody. Yeah. You don't know where to start to, to even begin to get it. And I think that that just sets you up in later life for a bit of a fall. So somewhere along the lines, you were married. Yes. Yes. And at some point, things started falling apart. You were married for 12 years? I was with him for 12 years. Yeah. We'd only been married for 15 months, which was weird. I didn't even want to get married. <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's a difficult topic for me to talk about, if I'm honest, because everything changed after that relationship yeah. and that part of my life. I kind of stick it in a box and I, I like to leave it there because it's just, I, I don't know how I feel about things still. Every, everything about it was just so surreal and so weird that, you know, I, it just set into motion all of these events that have kind of led me to this. There's just a lot of emotion around that time that I still haven't really processed because it's just, I haven't got headspace for it, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's really interesting because I heard your voice change so much, just even when I said <laughs> you were married. And so much of what has led to your life now has been about being really open and honest and sharing about the experiences we'll talk about in a minute. But it's interesting to me that there is this part of your life that you're just like, I still have to keep that in a box. I think without going into the details of what happened, because that's kind of, you know, it's, it's not really for public consumption. It was a decision that he made mm -hmm. and I came home from work and he was about to pack a case and leave the country. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I can't talk, I can't talk. You know, I'm off to such and such a place. It was the way that he did it. It wasn't the fact that the relationship ended. It was, it was just, there was no warning. It was like completely sudden. And it was, it was only during the space of this conversation that the penny dropped that he was actually leaving and he wasn't coming back. Or that was, you know, the, the impression that I'd been given. And it was just, I think, it, again, it, it kicked off the issue that I'd had you know about my dad dying it was like I've literally I've come home twice now and somebody's either left or they're leaving I think that played a big part in you know how I handled things yeah it definitely you know, the, when you started telling the story it was like this is in a completely different way but it's exactly the same thing exactly and it, but I didn't realize that at the time it's only later I think the other thing as well was because of my background, because of my upbringing, the only thing I've ever wanted was a stable, secure, loving family. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd be dating different people and they'd take me to their house and, you know, we'd sit in the conservatory or whatever and we'd have like big family dinners and things. And there was like this big part of my soul that was like crying out going, I want this so much. 
And I had that. That's the thing that did the damage. I had that for 12 years. And so just as I was kind of starting to believe that everything was, you know, this would, this was fine, you know, this was how we were going to be, then to have the rug pulled away was absolutely devastating because it, you know, it wasn't just my relationship. It was, it was all my dreams of the relationship. It was everything. You know, and knowing that I was going to lose the flat and, and having to rehome the animals and, you know, having strangers coming into the place to buy my things or giving it away, you know, and, and just the uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen to me and, and feeling completely by myself was just horrendous. You know, it, it really was. It was. It was the worst time of my life. And you said something about rehousing the animals and... Yeah, so it was, you know, we'd, we'd got like cats and a dog and I kept Bear, obviously. He was like my little rescue cat. That was non-negotiable. There was no way I was going anywhere without Bear. You know, he'd got one eye and no tail and, and, <laughs> and he'd really been through the ringer. And yeah, <laughs> he was my dude. You know, I, I loved him. So I loved all of them, don't get me wrong, I did. But realistically... I was going to be moving into a caravan. That was the plan because I wouldn't be able to get a room with an animal. So, you know, I, um, I had to rehome the, the animals, which was heartbreaking. And then it was just me and Bear. And then when he got sick and I had to put him to sleep, I was just like, do you know what? I'm so over this. Like you wouldn't believe. I couldn't cope. I think you used the, the term epic mental breakdown, mm. which... I did. I, I just, I remember walking back from the vets. I'd, I'd left him there and he hated the vets anyway because he was such a sickly little cat and he'd had so much done to him that any time that he had to go to the vets, he was absolutely petrified. And so even though he was on his last legs, he knew where I was taking him. So that was even worse. And I didn't want to leave him. I couldn't, I couldn't leave him there. The staff were kind of like gathering around and they obviously kind of wanted to speed me up and, and crack on and, and, you know, they had other clients to see and stuff. And I'm thinking, but I don't want to give him to you. You know, I, I don't want to do that. And I got back. I remember like eventually I, and somebody was trying to phone me as well and try and sell me bloody life insurance oh, or God. something ridiculous. <laughs> When I eventually answered the phone, I've got this person waffling on about this, like, completely irrelevant stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't have this conversation with you. You know, my, my life is literally falling apart right now. And I, I really need you to go away. So I remember having this conversation with this person and really ripping into them. I can't even grieve without somebody wanting a piece of me. I got back to the, the caravan and, and that's when I knew I'd lost it. And I was like, do you know what I've, I've done now? I've, I've got nothing left to give to anybody. I've got nothing to live for because the one thing that was keeping me going is now dead. And I really don't give a shit from this point onwards. And, and I literally, that was it. And I had a real logical, clear conversation in my mind that that was it. I didn't want to carry on anymore. So when was this? 2014. And then I went on the rampage for like two years, pretty much. I couldn't live in the caravan without Bear because it felt like a, a coffin now. And also the caravan site where I was, was really quite an unsafe place. So I was, it was kind of two sites in one. Um, and they wanted to, to move me to like the 18 to 30 site. And, and I didn't want to move there. 
You know, I was like, no, I, I don't want to be surrounded by people partying and, and you know, and getting drunk and, and getting off their faces every night. And I don't want that for myself. You know, I'm quite happy where I am in this field that I've paid for. Yeah. I just want to stay here and, and just crack on, you know. And every time they saw me, it was like, right, we're moving you. We're moving your caravan. We're doing this. We're doing that. And I'm like, no, you can't. So I, I just, I didn't feel safe there. I missed Bear too much. I just couldn't handle it. So I just, I just went walkabouts. So you had this conversation with yourself. You were done. You just couldn't give anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What moment did you decide that you had to drink? I can't handle it. I was drinking anyway. You know, I'd, I'd been drinking before because it was like everything had gone to shit. You know, my relationship was over. I knew I was going to lose the flat and it, it, it just got too much. I was drinking more than ever. You know, what started off, like, I thought that I was already at rock bottom with my drinking once I was in the caravan, but I was nowhere near it. You know, I, I wasn't addicted until much later when I literally couldn't function in the morning without having a drink. So it's, you know, it took a while to, to creep up and properly grab a hold on me. I went from drinking to kind of switch off my mind and pretend that everything, you know, will be all right in the morning to drinking because it, it was actually the only thing that was keeping me alive. You, do, you don't see it sneaking up on you the way that it does. You know that you're waking up and you're feeling rubbish and everything's all crap and, you know, and you, you're having a few drinks to kind of just take the edge off that. But when it actually shifts to you literally not being able to function without it, like I, I stopped eating to make room for more alcohol, <laughs> Because that's, that's what it does to you, you know. It's, it becomes something that you're reliant on. And, and that was just horrendous. Just, I can't even begin to describe how horrific that was, you know, knowing then that I was addicted. You said something about, you know, you got to the point you didn't want to be in your caravan and you were doing these walkabouts. At this point, are you homeless? Do you, do you still have any place to go? Where are you sleeping? How are you just getting through days? It, it just, it, it literally varied from day to day because I had the caravan on the site for a while and then I didn't have the money to keep paying for the caravan to stay where it was anyway. It was, it was a lot of money. So we ended up moving the caravan onto a car park. My friend's a vicar and so I put the caravan on his car park and obviously I couldn't live in it because there was no facilities or anything. So it was just from then on, it was like literally wherever I was that day and ended up that night just depended on the situation and who I was with and which sounds horrendous, but it, it actually was. So I can't, can't dress it up any other way. You know, it's, that's how my life was. It was literally hour by hour. And I feel like as a woman, not that it's worse or better necessarily, but I mean, I imagine that it's much scarier at times. And I don't even know if maybe you were too drunk to know to be scared, but the idea of, I don't know where I'm going or who these people are, because, you know, physically we get taken advantage of. You read stories about homeless women that are constantly hiding because they don't want to be beaten or worse. I think, again, with me, a lot of it was, was just denial. If it, I couldn't actually sit down and process the, the situation that I was in because it was too overwhelming. So my answer to that was just to drink more, which obviously wasn't an answer at all. It was just making things worse. And then I got involved with someone who wasn't particularly a very nice person. And so I, you know, I found myself living with him. 
I found out later he'd been watching me for months. So what I thought were chance encounters weren't actually chance encounters. It was him keeping tabs on my movements and then just accidentally on purpose turning up. And so he, you know, he rocks up as this kind of knight in shining armor when he was absolutely, you know, anything but that. So I'd got him like shouting at me and screaming at me and, you know, going through my phone and like just frightening me constantly. And he was an alcoholic. So that obviously didn't help. And I was trying to, to get my act together and I was going to meetings and, you know, and, and asking for help, putting everything in place. And he didn't want that to happen because he needed his drinking partner. Yeah. And so me getting sober, this is actually like my second attempt. So the first time I dried out in a hospital for five days and then I should have gone back to my family in Stoke-on-Trent. But I chose not to. I chose to stay here because this is where I built my life for like 20 years. And of course, I walked out of hospital and I was clean of alcohol, but I was going back into the exact same craziness that had, you know, helped to put me there in the first place. So I went back to this guy and within a couple of days, it was like, right, so, you know, do you fancy going out for a drink then? (laughs) And I'm I'm like, I've just come out of hospital. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I don't really want to be drinking funnily enough you know it's not really high on my list of priorities but he wanted me sick you know and and this is what my key worker was saying to me as well because you know she knew the situation she knew that I was with this guy and she's like he doesn't want you well he wants you sick he needs you sick because if you're sick he can control you and and you know carry on doing what he's doing yeah, and taking advantage of every yeah. insecurity and every oh, it, need it was for a drink. And- he'd phone like five times a day asking where I was and, you know, what I was doing. And I would tell him and he'd be like, no, you're not. Or he'd ask me how I'd walked back to the house and I'd say, oh, you know, I, I did this, this and this. And no, you didn't. Everything I said was just twisted. I'm literally living with this guy who's trying to make me crazy and he didn't need to because I was already doing a pretty good job of doing that to myself. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, so I, I had this detox and, uh, you know, I went back to him and, and so within a week I was sitting there in Weatherspoons with a pint and just going, do you know what, I, I cannot do this. I think this is when I started to realise that I'm going to die like this. And so I put moves in place again and I spoke to my key worker and, and I was like, look, you know, you've really got to help me because I'm I'm struggling. And I had a meeting with her and I actually had to stop halfway through to run into the bathroom to be sick. And she was there. I remember she was like stroking my hair over the sink. And she was like, come on, you know, we're we're, going to sort this. And they must have been logging into my account and just looking at all these red flags popping up everywhere and going, do you know what? We've got to get her a bed. Right. And so I got admitted to detox. And as soon as I got into detox, it was like I knew I could breathe. You know, and that, and that was the turning point. It wasn't the realization that I was in detox that was the wake up call. It was like, I'm in detox and this is going to change my life. And finally and having it, that, even though it's technically their job, it, it must have felt like finally somebody cared. And they did as well. Like the staff were incredible. They, they really were, you know, it was, it was monitored 24 hours a day. There were, there was always stuff around. So if you couldn't sleep or, you know, for whatever reason, there was always somebody there to turn to. And you had your own room with a, you know, a lock on the door and like a bath and all the just normal stuff that you need, you know, to, to keep clean and, and just start to take care of yourself. 
and that, you know, people that are living quote unquote normal lives take for granted every day to hear you say to have a lock on the door. That's huge it, at, at that moment for you. I were, before I went into detox, I was sleeping on a sofa. Okay. And, and the guy whose house I was in was really kind. He was an older guy and, you know, he didn't have any ill intentions towards me. He was this eccentric pensioner. He called me an angel. And so I'm sleeping on this guy's sofa and he used to say to me, look, you know, you can, you can have a, a shower if you want, you know, go and go and have a shower. And I couldn't because even though I felt like his intentions were, were good, just knowing that he would know that I was naked the other side of that door was too much if that makes any sense at all so I you know I slept in all my clothes I slept in my boots as well I'd got my dead cat's ashes in my sleeping bag you know to go from that to this is just mind-blowing stay tuned for the second half or should I say the second chapter of Denise's inspirational story coming next week Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.